morning, turn to the book of the Psalms, Psalm 24, Psalm 24. Well, we are doing Vacation Bible School this week. It's one of the most important weeks on our church calendar. Uh, It's one of my favorite weeks, especially since Molly has taken over doing a lot of the work. Uh, Y'all can thank Molly and Mike uh, for a lot of the things that they've done here. Um, We do appreciate y'all and the work you've done to to help us get ready for it. Um, It's a wonderful week for us to preach to our children. Uh, And I have fond memories of Vacation Bible School. I have fond memories of going and having fun. Uh, But but my most vivid memory is the one that I share almost every year uh, where Dan Moeller shared the gospel and I heard it for the first time when I was seven or eight years old. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. This this year, the theme is Upward Bound. We're, we're talking about how it is that we can get to God. That's why we have uh, the mountain behind us. And, uh, and, and we think about God as if he's on the top of the mountain and we have to climb to him. We have to get uh, to him. That's the major theme. The question that we're asking is how can we get to God? Today in this passage, King David great King David, writer of the majority of the Psalms, is going to tell us how it is that we can get to God. Let me read this for you. This is God's good and kind word to you this morning. Psalm chapter 24, 1 through 10. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the sea and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gate, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word today. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we thank you for giving us this word this morning. We pray that it would do all that you have promised for it to do. And it would enlighten our hearts to your glory, to the grace that is ours through your son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Father, we thank you again for this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to look at this passage in four ways today. I normally do three ways. Today is four ways, so pay attention. We have an extra uh, point in here today. Kenny normally checks out after point three, so I just want to make sure. Don't. There's four. First, we're going to see God's character in verses one and two. Secondly, we're going to see God's calling in verses three and four. Thirdly, we're going to see God's cleansing in five and six. And then fourthly, uh, God's comfort in seven through ten. So first of all, God's character. King David writes this psalm to us, uh, and he's uh, addressing us because he wants us to know about God. Uh, 
God or David wants us to know what God is like, and so we're given some details here in the first two verses about God. Um, David assumes some things about us. He assumes that because we're human beings, that we will uh, be worshiping something. We are, uh, by virtue of our creation, by virtue of God making us in His image, we worship. We are worshiping beings. So even if you don't worship the God of heaven, you will worship something. And something that's interesting is that we will always worship the thing that we find the greatest and the most beautiful. So if you think LSU baseball is the greatest thing in the world, you will worship LSU baseball. If you think that um, sports is great, you will worship that. If you think your wife or your husband or or women or men in general are great and, and their desire or they're, they're worthy of worship. You will give your lives over to them. You will always give your life to something, the thing that you think is the best. And David assumes that you are a worshiping being. And he says, you need to know why you should worship Yahweh over everything else in the world. And he tells us this. First of all, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And he says, you need to know, first of all, that God is great, that you need to worship him because he made the world and he made everything in it. And so we're taught here about God's power, that he made it. Now, the backdrop of this is the pagan world where they don't just have one God, but they have multiple gods that all have their sphere of influence. They're all doing one thing or another, and more often than not, they're all trying to battle with each other to get power and might and to, and to you know, rip power out of another god's hand so that they can have more control. And, and that's the backdrop to this is the pagan world who... who Everyone is trying to figure out which God to appease at, at various times, at the right times, so that their life will go well, so that everything will go well. And here David says, no, there's none of that. Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and even back further to Abraham and who spoke to Adam and Eve and spoke Adam and Eve and all of the world into existence, he is the one that is in charge. He made it. And because he made it, he has ownership over it. He owns it. He has ownership over it. Years ago, I remember watching a comedian in a sitcom talk to his son, his son who was, uh, who was not doing what he should be doing. And this comedian who represented the ideal father looked at his son and said, boy, I brought you into the world and I can take you out of it. And I laughed at that, and I always remembered that comedian saying that to his son because I thought that about my own father. He did bring me into the world. And that means that he owns me. Well, this passage says, no, that's not right. Parents don't own their children. Husbands don't own their wives. Wives don't own their husbands or their children. Our families are not our own. Our lives are not our own. They belong to God. He has ownership of it. He made it. He owns it. And David says, you worship God because he made it and he owns it. Now, because of the backdrop of this is the pagan world where there are all these gods and all these gods are constantly fighting with each other for more and more control. And you have to do things to appease the gods. The backdrop of this that David is writing into is a world of anxiety, a world full of people who are so afraid that they have no control over anything. And the gods are always at odds and always fighting that, that everyone is always fighting, that there's no stability, that there's nothing in the world that provides stability. There's no one at the wheel. It's as if you're on an airplane 
and you're sitting there in first class and the pilots get tired and they decide that they want to come sit in first class with you and you look over from a nap because you're enjoying first class and you go, wait, the pilot's here with me. Who's flying the plane? And the pilot says, I don't know. It would be like that, and the anxiety that would come because you know that no one is flying the plane. That's what it would have been like to live in a pagan world. I don't know if you've had the misfortune of knowing anybody that practices paganism. Paganism is alive and well in the United States. It's growing all over the place. Uh, there are places in Louisiana where it has uh, it has taken a stronghold or a foothold. Livingston Parish has one of the greatest presence of actual paganism, Wiccanism. Uh, it's just one parish over. It's, it's here. It's alive and well. I don't know if you've ever interacted with somebody. More than likely you have someone who believes in paganism. And the thing that you will find out about them is they are trying to get control through their practice of paganism over the world around them because they believe that no one is in control. And what does that create? Lots and lots and lots of anxiety. If you know anybody that practices, I've known a few people uh, that believe in pagan principles and try to control the, the elements of the world through their witchcraft and all the things that they do. They're not powerful people. They are scared to death because deep down what they know is that they have no control and they don't believe that anybody else does as well. And to that, David says in verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And we look at that and say, that's kind of weird. What is he talking about there? David says, here's what you need to know about Yahweh. He has established, put the foundation of the world where? On top of the seas. Now we kind of hear that and we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If you look at the earth, if you look at the world and, and all the universe, we know that it's just kind of floating out there in space. But the ancient Jewish people and many ancient people believed that space was the waters, that it was a place of chaos. And what we're told here is that God established, he put the foundations of the world in the middle of chaos. And it's stable and it's not going anywhere because God, not only did he make it, but that word that we read there, he establishes it. It's not established past tense. He establishes, he sustains it even today. The world is stable because Yahweh is in control. He made it and he sustains it. That creates stability for God's people. Here is the character of God. That means that he's holy, that he's above us, that he is righteous and good. David is arguing that we should want to worship this God over all the other gods. Well, secondly, he gets to this point and he says, well, we get to God's calling, God calling us to worship him. And David is asking the most important question, I believe, that can be asked, that humans can ask. This is, this is it. If you, if you don't get anything else from the sermon, get this, that, that you need to answer this question, how can I get to God? And David asks it this way, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? How can I get to God? He's up there. How can I get to him? He's great. He's wonderful. He's majestic. How can I, down here, get to him? And he asked it again, who shall stand in his holy place? How can we get to this God who is holy and other? He is separate from his creation. How can we stand in his midst? Now, before we get to the problem in this, because there is a problem, there's a big problem for us. I want you to understand something, that David assumes that God is approachable. That God is approachable. 
If you go back and look at the pagan gods uh, that were out in the world, they were unapproachable. You couldn't go to them. But here God says, no, the real God, the true God, the living God is approachable. And he calls us to approach him. But how can you approach him? Well, David gives this answer in verse 4. The only way that you can get to God, the only way that you can ascend to the hill of the Lord is to have clean hands and a pure heart. It's to not lift up your soul to what is false and to not swear deceitfully. There are three things here in this description of the person who can get to God. He who has a clean hands. He who has clean hands. And what does that mean? Well, the, the idea of the hands are... He who has done nothing wrong. You use your hands to do things, so you've never committed any wrongdoing with your hands. He who has, um, so you're pure indeed. He who has not lifted up his soul to what is false. Uh, what this is talking about is your motives. So in order to be pure and to approach God, not only do you not, is the requirement that you do everything right, Pure indeed, but you also must have pure motives. That whenever you do something good, you must do it for the right motive. And the right motive, according to the scriptures, is for the glory of God. So that everything you do in your life, when you do something good, you have to do it to please only God. And then the third thing he says, and who does not swear deceitfully. It's the person who not only does good, not only has a pure motives in everything that he does, but every word that comes from his mouth is pure and good and right. That's the only way that you can ascend to the hill of the Lord. You must do everything perfectly and right. And you must have pure motives, good motives. You must be perfect in your motives. And we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Mark says on the lips of Jesus that if you do things for my name's sake. He doesn't say you do things for the good of others. He doesn't say you do things for the good of yourself. He says you do things for the good of God. That is the only correct motive. So in everything that you've ever done, in order to see God, in order to be with God, to ascend to his hill, your motives must be completely pure and done for him. Every word that comes out of your mouth has to be perfect and good and right and kind and never any bad word and never any gossip or slander about anyone else. No inappropriate words. No Nothing, nothing that, that just kind of sounds a little bit bad. No innuendo or, or anything like that. In order to ascend the hill of the God, you must be pure. So how are you doing? Not good. Amen. You're paying attention. We're not doing very good here. And here's the good news of this passage. We get into God's cleansing in verses 5 and 6. It's a weird thing if you really look at this passage. And, and David has talked about the pure man, the man who can ascend to the hill of the Lord. And then in the next path, next part, he talks about The man who receives a blessing from God. The man here who receives the blessing and salvation from the Lord. If he's pure, he doesn't need salvation. He already has it. 
So in 5 and 6, when he says he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, he is talking about the man who receives something from God. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though you can only get to God if you are pure in those three ways, pure of heart, pure of deed, pure of speech, God is in the business of giving us what we do not have. There's a, a St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine is one of the church fathers, old church fathers. Um, and, and his work in understanding the scriptures is we, we owe a great deal to him. And he had this prayer that upset um, all of the heretics of his day. And his prayer was this, God, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you command. And the idea was that that Augustine would pray that this is the major problem that people had. That they said, command what you will and then grant what you pray, assuming that we can't do what God commands. And there was this heretic, Pelagius, who said, no, if, if God commands us to do something, he must have already given us the ability to do it. And Augustine says, no, that's not the way it work, works. It's much better than that. God commands for us to be holy and perfect and pure. If you don't believe me, look up Leviticus 19.1. If you don't want to look to the Old Testament, look up the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> the words of Jesus that all of our Methodist friends say, those are the red letter words. Those are the most important ones. Well, they're all important. They're all equal. But there Jesus says, you, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And a little bit later in chapter 5, at the very end, he says, You be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Augustine prays this prayer, Command you what you will and grant what you command. God demands perfect righteousness from his people. And if you have any sense of your sin, you know that you are not righteous before God. The good news is that God gives us what we do not have. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness. That is, he will receive from God the thing that he does not have. We call it alien righteousness. I wish you would commit that to memory and use it often. This beautiful idea of God giving us what we do not have in and of ourselves. Something that comes from the outside of us. Something that only God can give us. And who gets this alien righteousness? Who gets this goodness from God? It's the one who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. This is an exclusive claim that David gives us. The only way that you can ascend to the hill of the Lord is to go through the God of Jacob. Who is the God of Jacob? It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh as he has revealed himself to Jacob, to all of the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The only way that you can get to God, God is to go through the God of Jacob and receive what you do not have. So that's the good news. How do you receive that? How do you get it? Well, you can only get it through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Because uh, David ends with God's comfort here in these last four verses, 7 through 10. He kind of does this call and response thing. He, he says, lift up your heads, O you gates. 
And be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. He's picturing an ancient city, probably Jerusalem. And the gates of the city closed and shut out. And the only one that can go in is is God himself, because that's God's city. And David says, open up gates, because your King has come in. And then he says, this catechism, this call and response, this question, who is the King of glory? The Lord, that is the word Yahweh there. Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. And he begins his catechism by saying, you need to know God's comfort by knowing who he is. Who is Yahweh? He is the God of might. He is strong and mighty, and no one can compare to him. And he modifies it by saying he is mighty in battle. That God is the God who fights What a beautiful picture this is. And he says, ancient doors, ancient gates, open up and let the king of glory come in. And and then he says at the very end, who is this king of glory again? He is not only strong and mighty, he's not mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king who, who commands all of the armies of God. And he is the king of glory. The word glory in Hebrew is the word for weight. He is the king of weight. He is the king who who in his weightiness is more weighty than anything else in the world. He is the heaviness. You worship the greatest thing in the room. You will always worship the thing you think has the most weight. And we're not talking about fat here. That's just the way that it is. And, And David says he is the king of weight. He is the king of glory. Open up. The doors for him. Well, how is this comfort? This is to be comfort for God's people. How is it comfort? Because the God who gives you his righteousness is also the God that stands today to fight for his people. God is the God who fights today for us. He is mighty in battle, and there is nothing that can stop God from overcoming for his people. He fights for his people, but he's the great fighter. He is the, the fighter that leads the Lord, or all of the host, that all of the heavenly host, that everyone, because there's more that are with us than are with the world. He is the king of glory. The king of glory, the king of weightiness is your king through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. What is your comfort? We, we probably all at our homes have on our bed, something we call comforter. What do you think about that comforter? What's, what's the quality of a comforter? Well, one thing for sure is it's heavy, isn't it? You crawl into the bed and you get under that comforter and it just weighs down on you and you just want to let everything else in the world sink away. That's the picture. That's why we call it a comforter, because it's heavy. It's weighty. That's the glory of being in Christ, because he is our great comforter. And the thing that comforts us is to know that he is for us. And, and when Paul writes in Romans 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? And he goes on and he lists all of the things that might possibly could be against God's people. And he, can, he concludes by saying, neither height nor death nor anything in all of creation can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ because he is with us. He is with us. In college, I had the privilege of having some really great friends. And I'm five foot four, 
I know that I'm not very tall, but all of my friends were like 6'3", 6'5". One of my friends was 6'7". And as a short guy everywhere I went, I had this entourage of guys that were with me who were massive. And everywhere we went, I was just like, I'm with them. (laughs) But you know, it wasn't just that I was with them. The great thing was is that they were with me. (laughs) I knew everywhere we went, they had my back. That's the picture that we get, that everywhere God's people go, God is with us. Well, let me conclude. We're out of time here. If you have Jesus Christ, if you have his righteousness, that's the alien righteousness, his righteousness, then you can ascend the hill of the Lord. That's the only way that you can ascend. And here's the interesting thing about Jesus. Jesus, you realize that he is the only one in all the history of the world that had any standing with God. One, because he is God. Two, because he was perfectly righteous in everything, in his deeds, in his words, in his motivation. Everything he did was for the glory of his Father. He had standing with God, and what did he do? He gave up his standing. He gave it up so that you could have a standing with God. Jesus, I want you to understand this, Jesus ascended not the hill of the Lord. He ascended the hill of Calvary so that you and I, in his Life, death, and resurrection can ascend to the hill of the Lord, having the righteousness that is his. Now, I want you to understand this, too. We talked about this in Sandy School. This is an important thing for Christians to get, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus is fighting for us. How is he fighting? He is fighting by taking the wrath of God that you and I deserve, our great warrior fighting for us. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can ascend the hill of the Lord. I hope this day that you have him, but more importantly, I hope that he has you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message. We thank you for this beautiful word. Thank you for your servant, David, who penned these words for us thousands of years ago, words that are still true and will be true into eternity. Father, we call out with King David, lift up your head, O you ancient doors. Lift up your gates that the King of glory, that he might come in. Father, I pray that the King of glory would come in to our hearts and would reside there. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by singing our hymn of response, number 478. I love to tell the story.